Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door. Uh, Despite what the intro has so graciously told you, Dr. Woodward will not be joining us today, uh, but I, Nick Shalna, will be uh, sharing something that I'm very, very excited to get into uh, and something that I think will be very helpful for you in understanding and defending the gospel, uh, not only from the New Testament, but from the Old Testament. Uh, And before we jump into that, I did want to mention a couple things. Number one, uh, check out apologetics.org. We have a lot of new uh, content on there. We've been working very hard to keep giving you guys the gospel and the defense of the gospel throughout this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And number two, when you get on apologetics.org, check out a video uh, where a a man named Dr. Moculus is giving his testimony. It's an amazing testimony. Uh, It'll blow you away. It it blew me away. It blew Dr. Woodward away. And we're just asking you to go and and click this video. It'll only take you a few minutes. Uh, It really is an awesome watch. Like I said, it won't take you long. And number three, if you go to the C.S. Lewis Society Facebook page, uh, you will see a series we're doing called Did You Know? Uh, and Dr. Woodward is currently going through a series of what he calls Gamaliel figures, uh, which of course comes from Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5 and uh, the Apostle Paul's mentor, who was not necessarily a Christian, but still said, hey, uh, I'm going to be an advocate of these guys as, as of now. Let's see what they have to say before we condemn them. So Dr. Woodward has been uh, writing about a series of people who have had this sort of uh, impact on Christianity. So I'm very excited to as I said, jump into the gospel in the Old Testament. Uh, And I think a question that may be raised a lot that people sometimes have a difficult time answering if they're not, um, you know, well-versed in the Old Testament is when does the Old Testament talk about the resurrection? So, of course, uh, if we believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that Jesus of Nazareth did everything that the Messiah was to do and fulfilled everything the Messiah was to fulfill, Why did he raise from the dead? Where does the Old Testament talk about the resurrection? Uh, And we're going to give you um, a very good answer for that. In fact, I think one of the best answers for that in the Old Testament. And this is going to come from Isaiah 53. And I just want to say off the bat, this is a book that we could literally probably spend weeks and weeks and months studying. I mean, we could go through every word of this chapter. It's one of the most amazing chapters in the entire Bible. But if you go to Isaiah 53, I think this is the best single picture of the gospel in the Old Testament. Uh, And we'll see that Jesus, as the Messiah, he did miracles, he did wonderful things, and he did these things because he's compassionate and because he's loving, of course. But ultimately, he did these things sort of like a police officer, for example, would show a badge so that we would know who they were, to show his authority, to show that he is who he is claiming that he is. Um, So, Isaiah 53, if we start off just at verse 1, it says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Uh, Now, the arm of the Lord represents salvation uh, that comes through God. So, he says, Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has believed our message? 
And I think this just alludes to, you know, all the prophets preaching over and over and over and, and then being chastised, being imprisoned, being killed uh, in the Old and in the New Testament. And in fact, Isaiah himself, according to Jewish tradition, may have been sawed in half. And he's saying, who has believed our message that we're preaching? To whom has the salvation of the Lord? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Okay, so now he's talking about the Messiah. Um, and, you, and you're going to see why he's talking about the Messiah in just a few minutes. He couldn't have been talking about a prophet in this chapter uh, or someone just out of the ordinary. He had to have talking, been talking about the Messiah. In this Messiah, uh, we have more than enough reason to believe is Jesus of Nazareth, as we'll see uh, later in this chapter. It says he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Now, a root out of dry ground is not something that you see every day, is it? No, a root doesn't grow out of dry ground. A root would typically grow in good soil and wet soil and soil that uh, has been perfectly prepared. But this root would come out of dry ground. Well, the Messiah came from uh, not only Nazareth, but Bethlehem. This is a prophecy we'd also see referenced in uh, Micah 5.2, that the Messiah would, would come from Bethlehem and that he would be from antiquity. Uh, but Jesus of Nazareth was born in Bethlehem, a place that had virtually no significance. It wasn't one of the tribes like Dan or Benjamin uh, or Judah. or It was a place that was considered to be insignificant. And in fact, uh, many historians would say that the population was probably you know, around a thousand or even less. It was a very small city. It was a very insignificant city. And this is the place that Micah 5.2 and right here Isaiah 53.2 alludes to. It says, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So he wasn't going to be some charming, you know, attractive figure that people would want to follow just for that reason. It says he had no beauty or majesty uh, nothing is in his appearance that we should desire him. So they weren't just people weren't just going to come out of the blue and follow him because he was handsome and he was charismatic. And then it goes on and tells us even that he was despised and he was rejected, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. And now you're starting to see number one. That Isaiah is not necessarily, proph necessarily prophesying something in the future. It's almost as if Isaiah is in the future looking back on the Messiah, looking back at the cross. Like it says, he grew up before him. He had no beauty. He was despised. It's like God is giving Isaiah this information of what had happened to the Messiah. And this is such an amazing chapter because it really is like a perfect snapshot of the gospel in the Old Testament, almost like it's overwhelming. There's so much here. But he was despised and he was rejected. Does that sound familiar? Of course we see that Jesus Christ was despised and he was rejected. In fact, he was killed by his very own people. He was murdered. He was hanged on a cross. He was humiliated. He was a man of suffering. I don't think even, even those who you know, don't believe that Jesus was God, even those who would reject his deity, they would not be shy to the fact that he suffered, that he was hung on a cross, that he was tortured, that he was humiliated, and he was familiar with pain, pain that he did not bring on himself. And we'll see that in just a couple verses. But people hid their faces from him. They wanted nothing to do with him. They were ashamed of him. It says he was despised and we held him in low esteem. They didn't think anything of him. They didn't look up to him. Uh, they would not worship him. 
they killed him. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. So isn't that interesting? This is when it starts to get a little deeper. He took our pain and bore our suffering. So this mysterious figure in Isaiah 53, if you were reading this for the first time, uh, what, nearly 3,000 years ago, I mean, what's going through your mind right now? Surely he took our pain? Who are they talking about here? He bore our suffering, not his own. He wasn't tortured for his own pain. He wasn't tortured for his own suffering. Well, this is something that seems very unheard of. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. So they considered him to be cursed. They considered him to be stricken. They considered him to be afflicted by God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And that's another specific word that we see here, pierced. Keep in mind, this is hundreds of years uh, before Roman crucifixion was ever in use. But right here, just like we see in other parts of the uh, scripture, we see this in Zechariah 12. Uh, we see this in Psalm 22, that Jesus was pierced for our transgression. The Messiah would be pierced. And of course, that's exactly what happened. He had nails uh, go through his hands or his wrists. He had nails go through his feet. And then he was literally pierced in the side when uh, water and blood had come out from his wound. So this Messiah was pierced for our, there's that word our again, our transgressions, our wrongdoings, our sinfulness. He was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. So we just, we can't move past this word our so quickly. He was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace, that brought me and you and anybody who was willing to put their faith in him. It brings them peace, eternal peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. And that's a really powerful statement. By his wounds, uh, we are healed. And in fact, I had gone through this chapter just, it maybe it was just a couple months ago. Uh, I believe it was somewhere around Easter. I had gone through it with my students. And we were kind of talking about what stood out to them. What really made them st uh, stop and think. And this is one of the verses that so many of them said, where it says, by his wounds, we are healed. I mean, that's, that's a kind of line, not even the full verse. That's just a sort of line that you could spend weeks thinking about, that you could meditate on for a long time. By his wounds, we are healed. So not only would this person suffer for our sins, suffer for our transgression and our, uh, our iniquity, but now it says by his wounds, we are healed. So whoever this mysterious figure would be, they have the ability to heal us by taking on sin. Okay, that's very clear in this passage, especially uh, in verses 3, 4, and 5, that this figure would have the ability, the authority to forgive our sins by his own wounds, by his own punishment, by his own suffering. That cannot be said about any human being on earth unless there's, there's a perfect human being somewhere that we've never heard of. Uh, that's not the case. This would have to be the perfect sacrifice. This would have to be God himself, by his wounds, we are healed. Verse 6 uh, goes on, says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own ways, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we all, all is not uh, a word just referring to specific people groups or referring specifically to the Jews. We all have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, 
and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the Lord laid on this mysterious figure the sinfulness, the iniquity of all people because they have all turned from him. This sounds very reminiscent of what Paul's quoting in Romans chapter 3, uh, that nobody desires God, nobody seeks him, nobody does what is right. No, not one, not a single person does what is right. And it's just, just the same thing we see in verse 6. We all have gone astray. We've all turned away from God. We've all trusted in ourselves. We've all trusted in other things. We've all put idols before him. Whether Jew or Christian or atheist, we all have things that we have decided uh, are going to come before God. We've decided that perhaps we're sufficient for our own salvation. We've decided that everybody goes to heaven. We've decided that, you know, well, what I've done isn't as bad as what this person has done, so maybe I'll be let off the hook. In fact, there are even a number of religions that teach as long as as you're 51% good, as long as you're more good than you are bad, you're going to go to heaven. But that's not what the Bible says, and this is very, very clear throughout Scripture. Nobody does what is right. Nobody seeks God. Not one single person. We have all become worthless, according to Scripture. Even Jesus himself says, why do you call me good? None good. None is good but God. And of course, he is God, and he's making a claim to deity. But nobody is good except for God. And it's, we see here that we've all turned away. We've all gone our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, this mysterious figure again, the iniquity of all of us. He goes on and says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before a shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And this, again, is just an allusion to the cross, to what was happening leading up to the cross, that he was oppressed for no reason at all, as we'll see in a moment, that he was afflicted, he was beaten, he was tortured, he was crucified, yet he did not open his mouth. Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, knew exactly what he needed to do. He knew exactly what his place was in the submission to the Father. He knew exactly what his calling was. He knew exactly what he needed to do. And so even when he was oppressed and afflicted, even when he said, if there's any other way, take this cup, the cup containing the wrath of God, take this cup from me if there's any other way. But he knew God's will. And so he didn't just go along with it. He did it perfectly. He fulfilled it perfectly. He fulfilled chapter uh, 53 of the book of Isaiah perfectly, along with all of the other messianic prophecies. And he did not open his mouth. Even when they were hurling insults at him, as we see in the Gospels, even when they were calling out and saying, well, if you're so mighty, you know, if God loves you, have him take you down from the cross. If he's calling out to Elijah, let's see if Elijah comes and saves him. We see this in the stories of the Passion. We see this uh, as well in Psalm 22. Uh, The specific insults that were hurled are mentioned in Psalm 22 uh, by David. So he was oppressed and afflicted, and he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And I don't think that that lamb is just there by uh, coincidence, that word lamb. I don't think it's just any other animal could have been placed there. Jesus was the lamb of God. He was... It is the Passover lamb whose body was broken, who suffered, who carried and paid for our iniquities and our sinfulness. He became sin for us, says Paul in Galatians. He became a curse for us 
and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, did not open his mouth, did not complain, did not speak of his authority and say, hey, you guys better be careful because I can come down from this cross uh, and literally judge the world and crush everything I don't... No, he didn't do any of that. He did not open his mouth. Uh, verse 8, if you're following along in scripture, goes on to say, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? He was taken away by oppression and judgment. He did nothing wrong, but he was falsely judged. He was falsely accused. He was falsely convicted. He was oppressed. He was taken away, and nobody protested. And think about this. Even his own followers, even the apostles, where were they during the crucifixion? Aside from John, who of course was there uh, with the women, they were all hiding. They fleed. They were nowhere to be found. Peter even denied his Savior three times before he was crucified, before Christ was crucified. So who of his generation protested? The people who should have been protesting, the people who should have been saying, no, 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 he's our Messiah, he's our Savior. Those are the same people who hanged him on a cross. So who protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. And there we see again that he's stepping into the place of those who deserved it. It says, for the transgression of my people, he was punished. Not for his own sin, not for his own transgression, because he didn't have any. But for the transgression of my people, Isaiah says, he was punished. He took on what they deserved. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And this is where it just keeps on continuing, getting more and more and more specific, like a lens just, if you were to picture a lens just zooming in further and further and further, and while you're looking at the same picture, the same picture of the gospel, you're continuing to see more and more and more detail, more angles, more things that you wouldn't have noticed without zooming in. Which, by the way, is the amazing thing about studying scripture. Um, if you read your Bible regularly or don't read it at all, I highly encourage you start learning how to study scripture because there's so much in here that you would never notice without really digging in prayerfully and carefully uh, and, and extracting these amazing things that God has put in there for a very specific purpose. But it says, uh, for example, right here, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, even though he did nothing wrong. Now, that's a weird line, right? He was assigned a place with the rich in his death. Well, of course, we know from Scripture, from the Gospels, that this refers specifically to Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man uh, who had become a disciple of Jesus, Scripture tells us. And when Jesus was crucified, Joseph of Arimathea, along with uh, Nicodemus, we see in the book of John, the same man uh, who was a teacher of Israel, who had a discussion with Jesus in John chapter 3. I'm sure we've all heard John 3.16. Well, that's where that comes from. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man, along with Nicodemus, took Jesus down from the cross before uh, the sundown on the Sabbath, and they placed him in Joseph's tomb, who was a rich Jewish man. So this is so specific that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. He would be a root out of dry ground. He would take on the sins of his people. And now it even says he would be with a rich man in his death. Who could have possibly uh, predicted something like this out of the blue? This is, this is so detailed that it's undeniable. And what's really cool is if you look at uh, the archaeology and the history of these, these things, 
uh, there have only been a handful of these style tombs that Jesus would have been buried in uh, that were from about 2,000 years ago. And all of the handful of these tombs, all of them were from rich Jewish people. So this aligns exactly with history as well. He was buried with a rich man in his death, though he had done nothing wrong. Yet, says verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And this is a very intense passage. This is a passage that, you know, I really wish we had more time to, to spend on each word and each verse of this chapter because it's such an incredible chapter. But it says that it was the Lord's will to crush him. Why? Because God has to punish sin. It was either us or it was him. He stepped in in our place for our sin, our iniquity, our transgression. And the Lord crushed him and caused him to suffer in our place. He became sin. He took on our sin so that we would not have to pay for it. Scripture says he separated our sin as far as the east is from the west. We would never know our sin. The Lord would remember our sin no more when we enter heaven if we believe in him. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And Jesus knew that this was the Lord's will. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, knew that it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And we see a picture of this in the Garden of Gethsemane, which I I had alluded to earlier, where he's holding the cup, which represents God's wrath. And he's saying, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. And of course, he went forth and took the wrath of God and took the punishment and took that that wrath that we couldn't even imagine, that we couldn't even understand or comprehend. He took it on so that we wouldn't have to. And it says, And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his his offspring and prolong his days. And this is where the resurrection comes in. We just saw that he was buried. He was dead. He was in a grave with the rich man. It was the Lord's will to crush him. And now it says, Though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin which by the way means he had to be perfect if his life is going to be an offering for sin he had to be the spotless perfect lamb he made his life an offering for sin this is not some prophet he will see his offspring and prolong his days how does somebody see their offspring and prolong their days if they're dead because he resurrected as John chapter 2 tells us Jesus rose himself from the dead he built that temple back up, the true temple, the true holy place, which is him himself, his presence. He raised from the dead. He saw his offspring, which is every believer who puts their faith in him. And he prolonged his days, even after being killed, because he raised from the dead. He is from antiquity. He is eternal. He is, as he tells us in John chapter 8, he is the great I am. And then lastly, it says, Uh, After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. The resurrection still alludes to this. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will defy the spoils with the strong, just as, uh, you know, the spoils that you would get from, let's say, pirates coming on land and, and taking everything. They would get spoils and they would divide them. Well, he will divide the blessing of God with the strong. Because he poured out his life into death and was numbered with the transgressions, transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Lastly, a prophet 
does not make intercession for transgressors. A prophet does not step in place and pay for the sin of sinners. Only the Messiah, only God, and only Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, our Savior, could do such a thing. And for those who might say that anybody could have gone and added all of this uh, into Scripture later, we know, just lastly, because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered in, uh, I believe it was 1947, that we have literally... 23 to 25 copies of the entire book of Isaiah that were discovered to have been written before Jesus walked the earth. So we know all of these things, all of these prophecies were written down before he walked the earth. And we are just scratching the surface on the gospel in the Old Testament from Isaiah 53. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at information at apologetics.org. See you back here next week on The Universe Next Door.